to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade-offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically minded decision maker, this podcast is for you. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Podlet. And today we have a special guest with us, Kelsey Hightower. A lot of people listening to us today will know Kelsey, but as usual, there are a lot of newcomers in the space. So, Kelsey, please give us a, an introduction. Yeah, so I, I consider myself a minimalist, so I'm going to keep this short. I work at Google on Google Cloud stuff. I've uh, been involved with the Kubernetes community for what? three, four, five years, ever since it's been out. And one main goal, learning in public and helping other people do the same. There we go. And uh, you do have a repo on your GitHub that is about learning Kubernetes the hard way. Are you still maintaining that? Yeah, so every six months or so. So Kubernetes the hard way, for those that don't know, it's a guide, a tutorial. You can copy and paste it. It takes about three hours. And the whole goal of that guide was to teach people how to stand up a Kubernetes cluster from the ground up, right? So starting from scratch, six VMs, you install etcd, all the components, the nodes, and then you run a few test workloads so you can get a feel for Kubernetes. And the history behind that was when I first joined Google, you know, we were all concerned about the adoption of such a complex system that Kubernetes is, right? Docker Swarm is out at the time. A lot of people are using Mesos, and we're wondering like, a lot of the feedback at that time was Kubernetes is too complex. So Kubernetes the hard way was built as a idea that if people understood how it worked, just like they understand how Linux works, because that's also complex, that if people just saw how the moving pieces fit together, then they would complain less about the complexity and have a way to kind of grasp it. So we also have, um, so I'll, I'm back. This is Duffy Cooley. I'm back this week. And then we also have Michael. Um, and Brian with us. So looking forward to the session, talking through this stuff. Yeah, thank you for doing that. I totally forgot to introduce who else was on the show and, and me, Carlesia. And we didn't plan what the topic is going to be today. I will take a wild guess and we are going to touch on Kubernetes. Olaf, I have so many questions for you, Kelsey. But first and foremost, why don't you tell us what you would love to talk about? One thing that I love about you is that every time I hear an interview of you, you're always talking about something different or you're talking about the same thing in a different way. I love that about uh, the way you speak. And, and I know you offer to be on a lot of podcast shows, and which is how we ended up here. And, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we're going to talk about what everybody's going to talk about, but I know that's not going to happen. So feel free to get the conversation started and we are VMware engineers here. So come at us with questions, but also what you would like to talk about on our show today. Yeah, so I mean, we're, we're all just coming straight off the heels of KubeCon, right? So this big 12,000 people getting together, we're super excited about Kubernetes, you know, in the midst of reInvent, things are wrapping up there as well. So when we started to think about Kubernetes and what's going to happen, and a lot of people saw Amazon jump in with Fargate for EKS, right? So those unfamiliar with that offering, 
over the years, all the cloud providers have been providing some hosted Kubernetes offering. The idea is that the cloud provider, just like we do with hypervisors and virtual machines, would provide this base infrastructure so you can focus on using Kubernetes. And you've seen this even flow down on-prem with VMware, right? VMware saying, hey, Kubernetes is going to be a part of this control plane that you can use, the Kubernetes API, to manage virtual machines and containers on-prem. So at some point now, where do we go from here? There's a big serverless movement, which is trying to eliminate infrastructure for all kinds of components, whether that's compute, databases, or storage. But even in the Kubernetes world, I think there's an appetite, and we saw this with Fargate, that we need to make the Kubernetes cluster disappear. Right? If we can make it disappear, then we can focus on building new platforms that extend the API or hell, just using Kubernetes as is without thinking about managing nodes, operating systems, and autoscalers. And I think that's kind of been a topic that I'm pretty interested in talking about because that feature means lots of things disappear, right? Programming languages and compilers made assembly disappear for a lot of developers. Assembly is still there. I think people get caught up on nothing goes away. They're right. Nothing goes away, but the number of people who have to interact with that thing is greatly reduced. You know what, Kelsey? I'm going to have you get out of my brain because that was <laughs> the exact example that I was going to use. I was um, on a bus today, and I was thinking about all the hubbub about the whole Fargate EKS thing. And then I was thinking, well, you know, Go, for example, can generate assembler and then it compiles that down. No one complains about the length of the assembler that Go generates. Who cares? And that's how we should think about this problem. That's a, that's a whole solved problem. Let's think about bigger things. And I think it's because in operations, we tend to identify ourselves as the people responsible for running the nodes. We're the people responsible for tuning the API server. So when someone says it's going to go away, in ops, and you see this in some parts, right? So ops, some people focus a lot more on observability. They can care less about what machines the thing runs on. They're still going to try to observe and tune it. You see this in SRE and some various practices. But a lot of people who came up in the world like I have in the traditional ops background, you were the one that pixie booted the server. You installed that Linux OS. You configured it with Puppet. So when someone tells you we're going to move on from that as if it's a good thing, yeah, you're going to be like, hold up. <laughs> That's my job. Definitely. We've, we, we've, brought, we've talked this topic through a couple of different times on, on this show as well, and it definitely comes back to like understanding that, in my opinion, it's not about whether there will be work for people who are in operations, people who want to focus on that. The real question to come to mind is, like, there is so much of that work that how are so few of us going to be able to accomplish it unless we radically rethink how it will be done? Like, we're vastly outnumbered, you know? Like, the number of people, like, logging into the internet for the first time every day is mind-boggling. In early days, we had this goal of abstract or automating ourselves out of a job. And anyone that tried that a number of times knows that you're always going to have something else to do. And mm -hmm. I think if we carry that to the infrastructure, I want to see the ops folks. Like, I was very surprised that Docker didn't come from operations folks. It came from the developer folks. Same thing for Vagrant. And the same thing from Kubernetes. These are developer-minded folks that want to tackle infrastructure problems. And I think if ops were to put more skin in the game earlier on, definitely capable of building these systems. And maybe they even end up more mature as more operations people put ops-minded thinking to these problems. Well, that's exactly what we should do. And like you said, Kelsey, we will always have a job. Whenever we solve one problem, we could think about more interesting problems. We don't think about Linux phone servers anymore. We just put server Linux on servers and we run it. 
we don't think about the 15 years where it was a little rocky. That's gone now. So think about what we did there and let's do that again with what we're doing now. Yeah, I think the Prometheus community is a good example of operations-minded folks producing a system. Like when you meet the kind of the originators of Prometheus, they took a lot of their operational knowledge and kind of built this metrics and monitoring standard that we all kind of think about now when we talk about, you know, some levels of observability. And I think that's what happens when you have good operations people that take prior, you know, experience and knowledge and that can happen to code these days. This is the kind of systems they produce. And it's a very robust and extensible API that I think you start to see a lot of adoption. One more thing on Prometheus. Prometheus is six years old. Just think about that. And it's not done yet. And it's just gotten better and better and better. We got to give up our old things so we can get better and better and better. So that's just what I want to add. Kelsey, if you look at the basically your own history of coming from ops, as I understood your, your own history, right? And now being kind of one of the poster childs in the Kubernetes um, uh, world, you see the world changing to serverless, to higher abstractions, more complex systems on one hand. But then on the other side, we have ops and looking beyond or outside the, the world of Silicon Valley into the traditional ops at the traditional large enterprise. What do you think is the current majority level of these ops people, and I don't want to discriminate anyone here. I'm just basically throwing this out as a question. And where do you think, do they need to go in terms of to keep up with this evolving and higher level abstractions where we don't really care about nitty-gritty details? Yeah, so this is a good, good question. I spend half of my time, so I probably spend time on site with at least 100 customers a year globally. I fly on a plane and visit them in the home turf. And you definitely meet people at various skill levels and areas of responsibility. I wanna make sure that I'm clear about the areas of responsibility. Sometimes you're hired in an area of responsibility that's below your skill set, right? Some people are hired to manage batch jobs or to translate files from XML to JSON. That really doesn't say a lot about their skill set, just kind of talks about the area of responsibility. So shout out to all the people that are dealing with mainframes and having to deal with that kind of stuff. But when you look at it, you have the opportunity to rise up to whatever level you want to be in, in terms of your education. So when we talk about this particular question, some people really do see themselves as operators and there's nothing wrong with that. Meaning they come in, they get a system and they turn the knobs. You give me a mainframe, I will tell you how to turn the knobs on that mainframe. You buy me a microwave, I'll tell you how to pop popcorn. They're not very interested in building a microwave. Maybe they have other things that are more important to them, and that is totally okay. Then you have people who are always trying to push the boundaries. So before Kubernetes, if I think back to 10 years ago, maybe eight, when I was working in inter traditional enterprise, like the kind of the ones you're talking about or hinting at, the goal has always been to abstract away all of the stuff that it means to deploy an application the right way in a specific environment for that particular company. And the way I managed to do it was say, hey, look, we have a very complex change management process. I work in finance at the time. So everything had to have a ticket no matter how good the automation was. So I decided to make Jira, the ticketing system, the front door to do everything. So you go to Jira, there'll be a custom field that says, hey, here are all the RPMs that have been QA'd by the QA team. Here's all the available environments. You put those two fields in, that ticket goes through change management and approval, and then something below the scenes automated everything. In that case, it was Puppet, Red Hat, and VMware, right? So I think what most people have been doing, if you're in the, the world of abstracting this stuff away, making it easier for the company to adopt, you've already been pushing these ideas that we call serverless now. Right? I think the cloud providers, we put these labels on platforms to describe the contract between us and the consumer 
of the APIs that we present. But if you're in operations, you should have been trying to abstract away all of this stuff for the last 10 to 15 years. So I 100% I agree. And then also think about other verticals. So 23 years ago, I did system work. That was my job. But we learned how to program in C and C++ because we were on old suns, not even Spark machines. We were on old suns and we wanted to write things in CDE and we wanted to write our own window managers. That is what we're doing right now. And that's why you see like Mitchell Hashimoto with um, Vagrant and you're seeing how we're pushing this thing. We have barely scratched the surface of what we're trying to do. And for a lot of people who are just ops minded, understand that being ops minded is just the end. You have to be able to think outside of your boundaries so we can create the next big thing. Or you may not care about creating the next big thing. There are parts of my life where I just don't care. For example, I pay Comcast to get internet access and my ops involvement was going to Best Buy and buying a modem and screwing it into the wall. And I troubleshoot this thing every once in a while when someone in the household complains the internet is down. But that's as far as I'm ever going to push the internet boundaries, right? Like I am not really interested in pushing that forward. I'm assuming others will. And I think that's one thing in our industry where, you know, sometimes we believe that we all need to contribute to pushing things forward. Look, there's a lot of value in being a great operations person. Uh, Just be welcome to saying that what we operate will change over time. Yes, fair, very fair. Yeah, for me personally, I definitely identify as an operations person. I don't consider it my life's goal to create new work necessarily, but to expand on the work that has been identified and to help people understand the value of it, right? So I, I find I sit in between two roles personally, right? One is to help figure out all of the different edges and pieces and parts of Kubernetes or some other thing in the ecosystem, and second, to educate others on those things, right? Take what I've learned and, and amplify it, have an amplifying effect. One thing that I wanted to ask you, Kelsey, is so I work with uh, on the Valero project, and that does backup and recovery of Kubernetes clusters. And some people ask me, okay, so tell me about the people who are doing backups. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. That's boring. I want to talk about the people who are not doing backups. Okay, there are, you know, let's talk about why you should be doing maybe thinking about that. Well, anyway, I wonder if you get a lot of questions in the area of Kubernetes or operations or cloud native in general infrastructure, et cetera, that in the back of your mind, you go, hmm, that's the wrong question or questions. Do you get that? Yeah, so let's use your backup example. So I think when I hear questions, at least lets me know what people are thinking and where they're at. And if I ask enough questions, I can kind of get a pulse and the trend of where the majority of the people are. So let's take the backups question. When I hear people say, I want to back up my Kubernetes cluster, I rewind the clock in my mind and say, wow, I remember when we used to back up Linux servers because we didn't know what config files were on the disk. We didn't know what processes were running. So we used to do these PS snapshots and we used to pile up the whole file system and store it somewhere so we can recover it. Like remember Norton Ghost, like you take a machine and ghost it so you can make it again. And then we said, you know what? That's a bad idea. What we should be doing is having a tool that can make any machine look like the way we want it, right? Config management is born. So we don't back those up anymore. So when I hear that question, I say, hmm, what is happening in the community that's keeping people to ask these questions? Because if I hear a bunch of questions that already have good answers, 
that means those answers aren't visible enough. Not enough people are sharing these ideas. That should be my next keynote. Maybe we need to make sure that other people know that that is no longer a boring thing. Even though it's boring to me, it's not boring to the industry in general. So when I hear these questions, I kind of use it as a, keeps me up to date, keeps me grounded, right? So I hear stuff like, how many Kubernetes clusters should I have? I don't think there's a best practice around that answer. Like, depends on how your company segregates things. It depends on how you understand Kubernetes. It depends on the way you think about things. But I know why they're asking that question is because Kubernetes presents itself as a solution to a much broader problem set than it really is, right? Kubernetes manages a group of machines, typically backed by IS APIs. If you have that, that's what it does. It doesn't do everything else. It doesn't tell you exactly how you should run your business. It doesn't tell you how you should compartmentalize your product teams. Those decisions you have to make independently. And once you do, you can serialize those into Kubernetes. So that's the way I think about those questions when I hear them, you know, like, wow, yeah, that is a crazy thing that you're still asking this question six years later. But now I know why you're asking that question. That is a, such a, a great take on it. Because yes, in the area of backup, people who are doing backup, in my mind, well, yeah, it says it should be independent of Kubernetes or not. But let's talk about the people who are not doing backups. Like what motivates you to not do backups? Or obviously they can, well, backups can be done in many different ways. It can be done in many different ways, but yes. So think about it like this way. Some people don't exercise because exercise is tough and it's hard. And it's easier to sit on the couch, eat a bag of potato chips and exercise. And it's the same thing with backups. Well, backing up my Kubernetes cluster before Valero was so hard that I'd rather just invest brain cycles into, you know, figuring out how to make money. So that, that's where people come from when it comes to hard things like backups. And it's a trust element too, right? Because we don't know if the effort we're putting in is worth it. Like when people do unit testing, a lot of times unit testing is, can be seen as a proactive activity where you write unit tests to catch bugs in the future. Some people only write unit tests when there's a problem, meaning wow, there are some odd things in the database. Maybe we should write a test to prove that our code is putting odd things, fix the code, and now the tests pass. And I think it's really about trusting that the investment is worth it. And I think when you start to think about backups, I've seen people back up a lot of stuff, like every day or every couple of hours, they're backing up their database, but they've never restored the database. And then when you re read their root cause analysis, they're like, everything was going fine until we tried to restore a two terabyte database over a hundred meg link. Yeah, we never exercised that part. That is very true. Another really fascinating thing about the backup piece is that it, especially like in the Kubernetes ecosystem with Valero and stuff, like we're so used to having the conversation around stateless applications and being able to ensure it, that you could redeploy in the case of a failure, right? You're not trying to actually get back to a known state a, the way that like a backup traditionally would. You're just trying to get back to a running state. And so there's a bit of a dichotomy there, for, I think, for most folks, right? They don't realize... Certainly, I mean, they, maybe they're not conceptualizing the need for having to deal with some of those stateful applications when they start trying to think about how Valero fits into the puzzle, you know, because they've been told over and over again, this is about immutable infrastructure. This is about getting back to running. This is not about restoring some complex state. And so it's kind of interesting. And I think part of this is also that um, for the stateful services that why we do backups, actually, things change a lot lately, right? With those new databases, scale-out databases, cloud services. So thinking about backup also has changed in the new world of being cloud native, which for most of the people is also an, a new learning experiment to understand how should I backup Kafka? 
like it, it's replicated, but can I back up it? Like what about etcd and all, and all those things? There are little different things than restore, backing up a SQL database, uh, like more traditional system. The backup, I think, has even become more complex these days if needed for, for certain applications. Yeah, the case is what are you backing up and what do you hope to restore? Right, so replication, global replication, like we do with like cloud storage and S3. The goal is to give some people 11 nines of reliability and replicate that data almost as, as many geographies as you can. So we're, it's almost like this active backup. You're always backing up and restoring as a part of the system design versus it being an explicit action. And some people would say the type of replication we do for object stores is much closer to active restoring and backing up on a continuous basis versus a one-time checkpoint. Yeah, and just a little bit of a note, you can back up two terabytes over 100 meg link in like 44 hours and a half. So just putting that out there, it's possible, just like two days. But you're right, when it comes to backups, for especially for like, like let's say you're doing MySQL or Postgres, these days, is it better to back it up or is it better to have a replica right next to it and then having like a 10-minute delayed replica right next to that and then replicating to Europe or Asia, and then constantly querying the data that you're replicating. Is that that's still a backup? And it, what I'm saying here is that we can change the way that we talk about it. Backups aren't as conventional as they, they used to be. There's definitely the other ways to protect your data. Yeah, and I also think the other part too around the backup thing is, what is the price of data loss, right? When you take a backup, you're saying, I'm willing to lose as much data between the last backup and the next. And if that cost is too high, then backing up cannot be your primary mode of operation because the cost of losing data is way too high. And then replication becomes a complementing factor in the whole discussion of backups versus real-time replication and a shorter mean times to recovery. So I have, I have a couple of questions. Like, when should people not use Kubernetes? You know what I mean? Like, I, I visit a lot of customers. I work with a lot of eng teams. And I am in the camp of Kubernetes is not for everything, right? And that's a very obvious thing to say, but some people uh, don't actually practice it that way, right? They're trying to jam more and more into Kubernetes. So I love to get your insights on where do you see Kubernetes being like the wrong direction for some folks or workloads? I'm going to scratch this one from my questions list to Kelsey. <laughs> I'll answer it too then. I'll answer it after you all answer it. Okay, who wants to go first? All right, I'll go first. There are cases when I'm writing a piece of software where I don't care about the service discovery. I don't care about ingress. It's just software that needs to run. And, and when I'm running it locally, I don't need it. And if it's simple enough where I could basically throw it into a VM on a, through a CloudNet script, I think that is actually lower friction than Kubernetes. If it's simple now, but I'm also a little bit jaded here because I am, I work for the dude who created Kubernetes and I'm paid to create solutions for Kubernetes, but I'm also really pragmatic about it as well. It's all about effort for me. If I can do it faster in cloud in it, I will. For my part, I think that there's, I have a couple of kind of follow on questions for this real quick, but um, I do think that like, if you're not actively trying to develop a distributed system, something where you're actually making use of the primitives that Kubernetes provides, then that already would kind of be a red flag for me. Like if you're, if you're building like a monolithic application or you're in that place where you're just rapidly iterating on a SaaS product and you're just trying to like get as many commits on the thing until it works and like, you know, just really rapidly prototype or even create a thing, maybe Kubernetes isn't the right thing because although we've come a long way in improving the tools that allow for that iteration, 
I certainly wouldn't say that we're like all the way there yet, you know? I would debate you on that, Duffy. All right. And then the other part of it is, you know, Kubernetes aside, I'm curious about the same question as it relates to containerization, right? Like, is containerization the right thing for everyone? Or, or have, we, have we made that pronouncement for some? No, I'm going to jump in and answer on this one. Because I definitely think we need a way to transport applications in some way, right? We used mm-hmm. to do it on floppy disks. We used to do it RPMs, on CDs, RPMs, RPMs, DEBs. So I think the container to me, I treat as a glorified tarball. That's the way I've been seeing it for years. Registries <laughs> store them. They replace yum. Great. Now we kind of have a more maybe universal packaging format that can handle simple use cases, scratch containers, where it's just your binary, and the more complex use cases where you have to compose multiple layers to get the output, right? And I think RPM spec files used to do something very similar when you start to build those things into true roots. All right, we got that piece. Do people really need them? The thing I get weary about is when people believe they have to have Kubernetes on their laptop to build an app that will eventually deploy to Kubernetes, right? If we took that thinking about the cloud, then everyone would be trying to install OpenStack on their laptop just to build an app, right? Like, does that even make sense, right? It doesn't make sense in that context because you don't need the entire cloud platform on your laptop to build an app that's going to take a request and respond. And I think Kubernetes people, I guess because it's easier to put on your laptop, people believe that it needs to be there. So I think Kubernetes is overused because people just don't quite understand what it does. And I think there's a case where you don't use Kubernetes, like I need to read a file from a bucket. Someone uploaded an XML file and my app is going to translate it into JSON. That's it. In that case, this is where I think functions as a service, something like Cloud Run or even Heroku make a lot more sense to me because the operational complexity is kind of hidden within the provider and it's linked almost like an SDK to the overall service, which is the object store, right? So the compute part, I don't want to make a big deal about because it's only there to process the file that got uploaded, right? It's almost like a plug-in to an FTP server, if you will. So that, those are the cases where I start to see Kubernetes become less of a need because I don't need a custom platform to do such an obvious operation. In those applications that require the primitives that Kubernetes provides, service discovery, the ability to define ingress in a, in a normal way, when you're actually starting to figure out how you're going to platform that application with regard to those primitives, I do see the argument for having Kubernetes locally because you're going to be using those tools locally and remotely, right? You have to have some way of defining what that, what that platforming requirement is. So let me pull on that thread. If you have an app that depends on another app, Typically, we used to just have a command line flag that says, this app is over there, localhost when it's on my laptop, some DNS name when it's in the cluster, or a config file can satisfy that need. So the need for service discovery usually arises when you don't know where things are. But if you're literally on your laptop, you know where the things are. Like, you, you don't really have that problem. So when you bring that problem space to your laptop, I think you're actually making things worse. I've seen people depend on Kubernetes service discovery for the app to work. Meaning Mm. they just assume they can call a thing by name and they don't support IPs and ports. They don't support anything because they say, oh, no, 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 you'll always be running into Kubernetes. You know what's going to happen? In five or 10 years, we're going to be talking like, oh my God, you remember when we used to use Kubernetes? Man, that legacy thing. I built my whole career porting apps away from Kubernetes to the next thing. And the number one thing we'll talk about is where people lean too hard on service discovery 
or people who build apps that talk to config maps directly. Like, why are you calling the Kubernetes API from your app? That's not a good design, right? So I think we've got to be careful coupling ourselves too much to the infrastructure. That's a fair point. Two answers from my end to your question. So one is I just built an appliance which basically tries to bring a AWS Lambda experience to the vSphere ecosystem. And because we don't, or actually my approach is that I don't want any ops people who needs to do some one-off things like connect this guy to another guy. I don't want him to learn Kubernetes for that, right? It should be as simple as writing a function. So for that appliance, we had to decide how do we build it? Because it should be scalable. We might have some function as a service component running on there. So we looked around and we decided to put it on Kubernetes. So build the appliance as a traditional VM using Kubernetes on top. For me as a developer, it gave me a lot of capabilities like self-healing, those self-healing capabilities. But it's also fair points that you rose, Kelsey, about how much do we depend or write our applications being dependent on those auxiliary features from Kubernetes, like self-healing, re restarts. For example. Well, in your case, you're building a platform. I would hate for you to tell me that you rebuilt a Kubernetes-like thing just for that appliance, right? So in your case, it's a great use case. I think the problem that we have as platform builders is what happens when things start leaking up to the user, right? right? You tell a user all they have to care about is functions, then they get some errors saying, oh, there's some Kubernetes security context that doesn't work. And I'm like, what the hell is Kubernetes? That leakage is the problem. And I think that's the part where we have to be careful. And it'll take time where we don't start leaking the underlying platform, making the original goal untrue. The point is where I wanted to throw this question back was, now these functions being written as simple scripts, whatever the operators put in, they run on Kubernetes. Now the operators don't know that it runs on Kubernetes. But going back to your question, when should we not use Kubernetes? Is it me writing in a higher level abstraction like a function, not using Kubernetes in the first sense, because I don't know actually I'm using it, but under covers, I'm still using it. So it's kind of an answer and not an answer to your question. Because I've seen these single node appliances. There's only one node. Yes. Right, and they're only there to provide like ML at a grocery store. Yes. You don't have a distributed system. Now, what people want is the Kubernetes API, the way it deploys things, the way it swaps out a running container for the next one. We want that Kubernetes API. Today, the only way to get it is by essentially bringing up a whole Kubernetes cluster. I think the K3S project is trying to simplify that by re-implementing Kubernetes, no etcd, SQLite instead, a single binary that has everything. So I think what we start to say, what is Kubernetes? There's the implementation, which is a right. big distributed system, and there's the API. And I think what's gonna happen is, if you want the Kubernetes API, you're gonna have so many more choices on the implementation that makes better sense for the target platform. So if you're building an appliance, you're gonna look at K3S. If you're a cloud provider, you're gonna probably look something like we see on GitHub, right? And you're gonna modify it and integrate it into your cloud platform. Or maybe what will happen with Kubernetes over the next few years is what happened with the Linux API or the ABI. You can, and Firecracker and JeepVisor did this. We can, and WSL did this. We can basically swap out Linux on the back end because we can just get all the calls. So maybe that will happen with Kubernetes as well. So maybe Kubernetes will become a standard where it's Kubernetes a standard than Kubernetes implementation that we have right now. I don't even know about that, that one. We're starting to see it, right? So when you say, here's my pod, and we can just look at Fargate for EKS as an example. When you give them a pod, 
their implementation is definitely different than what most people are, are thinking about or running these days, right? One pod per VM, not using virtual cube. So they've taken that pod spec and tried to uphold its means. But the problem with that, you get leaks. For example, they don't allow you to bind to a host port. Well, the pod spec says you can bind to a host port. Their implementation doesn't allow you to do it. And we see the same problem with Gvisor. It doesn't implement all the system calls, right? Like you couldn't run the Docker daemon on top of Gvisor. It wouldn't work. So I think as long as we don't leak, right? Because when we leak, then we start breaking stuff. So we're doing the same thing with Project Pacific here at VMware, where this concept of a pod is actually a virtual machine that boots in like a tenth of a second. It's pretty crazy how, they, how they've been able to figure that out. So if we can get this right, though, that's, that's huge for us. That means we can move out of our binds and we can create better things that actually work. I'm on VMware, can use Pacific. I'm on AWS and I want this namespace I can use Fargate and EKS. Yeah, it's actually a great idea. And I remember this presentation, Kelsey, that you gave, I think two or three years ago, it might be three years, where you took the Kubernetes architecture and you removed the boxes. And the only thing remaining was the API server. And this is where it clicked to me. It's like, this is right, because I was focused on the scheduler. I wanted to understand the scheduler. But then you zoomed out, you, you stripped off all these pieces, and the only thing remaining was the API server. And there, this is where it clicked to me. It's like, like glibc or like the syscall interface. It's basically my API to do some crazy things that I would have write on my own in assembly kind of some things before I could even get started. And this was a breakthrough moment for me, this, this specific presentation. I'm working on an analogy to, to talk about what's happening with the Kubernetes API, and I haven't refined it yet, but it's when the web came out, we had all of these HTTP verbs, put, post, get, we have a body, we have headers. And you can extract that out of the whole web, right? The web browser plus the web server. And if you abstract out that one piece, then we, instead of building web pages, we can build APIs and GraphQL, right? Because we can reuse many of those mechanisms and we just call it RESTful interfaces. Kubernetes is going through the same evolution, right? The first thing we built was this container orchestration tool. But if you look at the CRDs, the way we do RBAC, the way we think about the status field in a custom object, if you extract those components out, then you end up with this Kubernetes-style APIs where we start to treat infrastructure not as code, but as data. Mm. And that will be the RESTful moment for Kubernetes, right? So the web, we extracted it out, then we have REST interfaces. And then Kubernetes, once we extract it out, we'll end up with this declarative way of describing maybe any system, but right now defined or the perfect match is infrastructure. Infrastructure as data, and using these CRDs to allow us to manipulate that data. So maybe you start with Helm, and then Helm gets piped into something like Customize that then gets piped into an emission controller, right? That's mm -hmm. how Kubernetes actually works. And that data model to API development, I think is gonna be the unique thing that lasts longer than the Kubernetes container platform does. But if you're talking about, correct me if I misinterpreted, platform as data, data to me is meant to be consumed and I actually have been thinking since you said, oh, developers should not be developing apps that connect directly to Kubernetes. I think you said the Kubernetes API. And then I was thinking, wait, I've heard so many times people saying that that's one great benefit of Kubernetes that the apps have that access. So now if you see my confusion, please clarify it. Yeah, so all right, I remember early on when we were doing config maps. And there's a big debate about how config maps should be consumed by the average application. So one way could be 
let's just make a config maps API and tell every developer that they need to import a Kubernetes library to call the API server, right? So now everybody's app doesn't work anymore on your laptop. So we were like, of course not. What we should do is have config maps be injected into the file system. So that's why you can actually describe a config map as a volume and say, take these key values from the config map and write them as normal files and inject them into the container so you can just read them from the file system. The other option also was environment variables, right? You can take a config map and translate them into an environment variables. And lastly, you can take those environment variables and put them into command line flags. So the whole point of that is all three of the most popular ways of configuring an app, environment variables, command line flags, and files, Kubernetes molded itself into that world so that developers would never tightly couple themselves to the Kubernetes API. Now, let's say you're building a platform, like you're building a workflow engine like Argo, or you're building a network control plane like Istio. Of course you should use the Kubernetes API, right? You're building a platform on top of a platform. And I would say that's kind of the exception to the rule if you're building a platform. But a general application that's leveraging the platform, I really think you should stay away from the Kubernetes API directly, right? You shouldn't be making syscalls directly out of band of your runtime, right? Like the unsafe package and Go. Once you start doing that, Go can't really help you anymore. You start pinning yourself to specific threads, you're going to be in a bad time. Right. Okay. I think I get it. But you can still use Kubernetes to decouple your app from the machine by using objects to generate those dependencies. Exactly, and that was the whole benefit of Kube and Docker even, saying, you know what, don't worry too much more about C groups and namespaces. Don't even try to do that yourself. Because remember, there was a period of time where people were actually trying to build C groups and network namespaces into the runtime, right? There's a bunch of like Ruby and Python projects that they were trying to containerize themselves within the runtime. Whoa, what are we doing? So having that second layer now with container D and 1C, we don't have to implement that 10,000 times for every programming language. One of, the, one of the things I want to come back to is your point that you made about, you know, the Kubernetes API being like one of the more attractive parts of the projects and people needing that to kind of move forward in some of these projects. And I wonder if it's more abstract than that. I wonder if it's abstract enough to think about in terms of like, a level triggered versus edge triggered stuff, like taking control theory, the control theory that basically makes Kubernetes such a stable project and applying that to software architecture rather than necessarily bringing the entire API with you. Like perhaps what you should take from this is the lessons that we've learned in developing Kubernetes and apply that to your software. Yeah, I have the, I have the fortunate time to spend some time with Mark Burris, right? He came out with promise theory and the promise theory is the underpinnings of Puppet, Chef, Ansible, CF Engine. And this idea that we would make promises about something and, and eventually converge into that state. But the problem was with Puppet, Chef, and Ansible, we were basically doing this with shell scripts and Ruby, right? Like we were trying to write all of these if and else statements. And when those didn't work, what did you do? You made an exec statement at the bottom. And then you're like, oh, just run some bash. And who, who knows what's going to happen? And that early implementations of promise theory, we didn't own the resource that we were making promises about. Like anyone could go behind us and remove the user or the user could have a different user ID on different systems but mean the same thing. In the Kubernetes world, we pushed a lot of that if-else statements into the controller and we forced the API not to have any code. That's the big difference. If you look at the Kubernetes API, you can't do if statements. Terraform, you can do if statements, so you kind of fall into the imperative trap 
at the worst moments when you're doing dry runs or something like that. And it does a really good job of it, don't get me wrong. So the Kubernetes API says, you know what? We're gonna go all in on this idea. You have to change the controller first and then update the API. There is no escape hatches in the API, so it forces a set of discipline that I think gets us closer to the promises because we know that the controller owns everything. There is no way to escape in the API itself. Exactly. That's, it. That's exactly what I was pushing for. I have a somewhat related question. I'm just not sure how to frame it correctly. So yesterday I saw a good talk by someone talking about protocols, like the somewhat forgotten power of protocols in the world of APIs. We got Swagger, we got API definitions, but he made the very easy point of if I give you an open, a close, and a write and a read method or an API, you still don't know how to call them in sequence and which one to call it all. And this is the same for the Go SDK for standard library, if I look at that. So I always have to force myself, should I do any close or am I leaking some stuff? And so I look it up. Versus in protocols, if you look at the RFC definitions, they are very, very precise and very cleanly outlined of what you should do, how you should behave, how you should communicate between those systems. So this is more about communication and less about the actual implementation of an API. And I still have to go through that talk again, and I'm, I'm going to put it in the show notes. But this kind of opened my, my mind again a little bit to think more about communication between systems and contracts and promises, as you said, Cassie. Um, because we make so many assumptions in our code, especially as we have to write a lot of stuff very quickly, which I think will make things brittle over time. So the gift and the curse of Kubernetes is that it, does, it tries to do both all the time. For some things like a pod or a deployment, we all feel that if I give any Kubernetes cluster a deployment object, I'm going to get back a running pod. This is what we all believe. But the thing is, it may not necessarily run on the same kernel. It may not run on the same OS version. It may not even run on the same type of infrastructure, right? So this is where I think Kubernetes ends up leaking some of those protocol promises, right? A deployment gets you a set of running pods. But then we drop down to a point where you can actually do your own API and build your own protocol. Like, so I think you're right. Istio is a protocol for thinking about service mesh, whereas Kubernetes provides the API for building such a protocol. Good point. Let me take it up. So on the Fargate stuff, I thought it was a really interesting article or actually an interesting project by Akiro Suda. I want to give him a shout out on this because I thought it was really interesting. He wrote a, an admission controller that leverages autoscaler, node affinity, and pod affinity to effectively do the same thing so that whenever there is a new pod created, it will spin up a new machine and associate only that pod with that machine. And I was like, what a fascinating project, but also just seeing this come up from like the whole Fargate, like ECS stuff, I was like. I think that's the thread that Virtual Cube was pulling on, right? This idea that you can simplify auto scaling if you remove that layer, right? Because right now we're trying to do this musical chairs dance, right? Like in the cloud, imagine if someone gave you the hypervisor and told you you're responsible for attaching hypervisor workers and the VMs. It would be a nightmare. We wouldn't be talking about auto scaling the way we do in the cloud. So I think Kubernetes is moving into a world where one pod per resource envelope, today we call them VMs, but I think at some point we're going to drop the VM and we would just call it a resource envelope. And VMs is just the way we think about that. Firecracker is like, hey, does it really need to be a complete VM? And Firecracker is saying, no, it doesn't. It just needs to be a resource envelope that allows you to run their particular workload. Yeah, same thing, same thing we're doing here. It's just enough of a VM to get you to the point where you can drop those containers onto it. Kelsey, question. Edge. Kubernetes on edge. Yes or no? Again, it's just like compute on edge has been a topic for discussion forever. Yeah. 
problem is when some people say compute on edge, they mean like go buy some servers from Dell and put it in some building somewhere as close to your property as you can. But then you have to go build the APIs to deploy to that edge. What people want, and I don't know how far off it is, but Kubernetes has set the bar so high that the Kubernetes API comes with a way to load balance, attach storage, all of these things by just writing a few YAML files. So what I hear people saying is, I want that close to my data center or store as possible. So when you say Kubernetes on the edge, that's what they're saying. It's like what we currently have on the edge is not enough. We've been providing edge for a very long time. OpenStack was, remember OpenStack? Oh, we're going to do OpenStack on the edge. But now you're a pseudo cloud provider without the APIs. So I think what Kubernetes is bringing to the table is that we have to have a default load balancer. We have to have a default block store. We have to have a default everything in order for it to mean Kubernetes like it does today, centralized. Well, stores have been doing this forever in some form or another. 20 years ago, I worked for a duty-free place and literally traveled all over the world replacing point of sale. You might think of point of sale as just a cash register. There was a computer in the back and it was RS-232 links to, from the cash register to the computer in the back. And then there was dial-up or a lease line to our central thing. We've been doing edge for a long time but now we can do edge and the central facility can actually manage the compute infrastructure. All they care about is basically CPU and memory and network storage now. And it's a lot more flexible. So this journey is long, but I think we're going to do it. It's going to happen. And I think we're almost ready. Uh, you know what, Car- are definitely experimenting. You know what, Carlisa, you know what's interesting now though? Like the, I was just watching the reInvent announcement. Verizon is starting to allow these edge components to leverage 5G for the last mile. And that's the game changer, right? Because most people are very skeptical about 5G being able to provide the same coverage as 4G, right? Because of the wavelength and, you know, point to point, all these things. But for Edge, this thing is a game changer. Higher bandwidth, but, you know, shorter distance. This is exactly what Edge wants, right? Now you don't have to dig up the ground and run fiber from point to point. So if you combine these Kubernetes APIs plus concepts like 5G and getting that closer to people, yeah, I think that's going to change the way we think about regions and zones. That kind of goes away. We're going to move closer to CDNs like Cloudflare has been experimenting with with their worker technology. Well, the edge stuff, I think that there's also an interesting dichotomy happening, right? There's there's a definition of edge that we've referred to, which is the store stuff and, and one that you're alluding to, which is that there may be like some way of actually having some edge capability at a point of presence near and a 5G tower or some point like that. In some cases, edge means data gravity, right? Like you're actually taking a bunch of data from sensors and you're trying to store it in a place where you don't have to pay the cost of moving all of that data from one point to another where you can actually centralize compute. And so like in those edge cases, you're actually willing to invest in the a high-end compute to allow for the manipulation of that data where that data like is so that you can afford to move it into some centralized location later. But I think that that whole, that whole space is so complex right now because there are so many different definitions and so many different levels of constraint that you have to solve for under one umbrella term, which is the edge, you know? <laughs> I think Brian was pulling on that with the POS stuff, right? Because instead yeah. of you going to go buy your own cash register and gluing everything together, that whole space got so optimized that you can just buy a square terminal, yeah. hook it on some Wi-Fi, and then there you go, right? You now yeah. have that thing. So once we start to do this for like ML capabilities, security capabilities, 
I think you're just going to see that POS like thing expand and that yeah. computer get a little bit more robust to do exactly what you're saying, right? Keep the data local. Maybe you ship models to that thing so that it can get smarter over time and then upload the data from various stores over time. Yep. One last question from my end, switching gears a bit if allowed, KubeCon. I, I left KubeCon with some mixed feelings this year, but my, my perspective is different because I'm not the typical one of these two twelve thousand people because most of them were newcomers actually. And so I looked at them and as I, I asked myself, if I would be new to this huge big world of CNCF and, and Kubernetes and all this stuff, what would I take from that? I would be confused, confused like hell from some of the talks which make it sound like it's so complex to run all the things through the keynotes which seems to be like just a lineup of different projects that i all have to get through and, and install and, and run so i was missing some perspective and um, some clarity from from kubecon this year especially for, for newcomers because i'm afraid if we don't retain them, attract them, and maybe make them contributors because that's another big problem. I'm afraid so, that uh, we'll, we'll lose our base <laughs> that is using Kubernetes. So um, before Kelsey says anything, and Kelsey was a KubeCon chair before I was, but I was a KubeCon chair this time, and I can tell you exactly why everything is like it is. Unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, this cloud native community is huge now. There's lots of money, there's lots of people, there's lots of interest. If we would have went back to KubeCon when it was in San Francisco years ago, or even like the first Seattle one, that was a, that was a community event. We could make the event for the community. Now, with there's community, the people who are creating the products, there's the end users, the people who are consuming the products, and there's these big corporations and companies, the people who are actually financing this whole entire thing. We actually have to balance all three of those so right. as a as a person who just wants to learn what are you trying to learn from are you learning from the consumption piece are you learning to be a vendor are you learning to be a contributor so you have to think about that and at a certain point that's good for kubernetes it means that we've been able to do the whole chasm thing we've crossed over to chasm this thing is real it's big it's going to make a lot of people a lot of money one day But I do see the, the issue for the person who's trying to come in and say, what do I do now? Well, unfortunately, it's like anything else. Where do you start? Well, you take it all in, so you need to figure out where you want to be. And I'm not going to be the person that's going to tell you, well, go do a SIG. That's, that's not it. What I want to tell you is like anything else that we've had to learn that's real hard, whether it's a programming language or a new technique, figure out where you want to be. And you're going to have to do some research. And then hopefully you can, uh, you can contribute. And I'm sure Kelsey has opinions on this as well. Yeah, I think Brian's right. I mean, I think it's just like a pyramid happening. At the very bottom, we're new. We need to get everybody together in one space. And it becomes more of a trade show, like an introductory, like a tasting, right? When you're hungry and you go and just taste everything. And then when you figure out what you want, then that will be your focus. And that's going to change every year for a lot of people. Some people go from consumer to contributor, and they're going to want something out of the conference. Like they're going to only want to go to the contributor day and maybe some of the deep dive technical tracks. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to serve everybody in two or three days, right? So you're going to start to have like everything pulling for your attention. And I think what you got to do is commit. Like as a, if you go and you're a contributor or you're someone that's building on top, you may have to find a separate event to kind of go with it, right? Like someone told me, hey, when you go to all of these conferences, make sure you don't forget to invest in the one-on-one -on -one time. Mm -hmm. Like me going to Oslo and spending an evening with Mark Burris to really talk about promise theory outside of, of competing for attention with the rest of the conference. 
So when I go, I like to meet new people, sit down with them. Out of the 12,000 people, I call it a win if I can meet three new people that I've never met before. And you know what? I'll do a follow-up hangout with them to go deeper in some areas. So I think it's more of a catch-all. It definitely has a trade show feel now <laughs> because it's big and there's a lot of money and opportunity involved. But at the same time, you got to know that, hey, you got to go and seek out. Like You go to Spotify, right? Spotify has so much music. So many genres I've never heard of, but you got to make your own playlist. You got to decide what you want. And also, look, go to sessions you know nothing about. Be confused on purpose. Like, you know, I go to Spotify sometimes like, you know what? What's happening in country music right now? Country music top 10. You know what? I'll try it. I, I will literally try a new genre and just let it play. And then you, what you find is you'll find one song. is like, oh, hold on. Who is that? And it turns out that one new artist, I actually like some of their music. And then I dive deep in that artist, maybe not the whole drama. Yeah, it's like when you're in school and you go to class and you didn't do any of the homework, you didn't do any of the reading, you sit there and you're like, hmm. I sympathize, I empathize with the amount to sort through. But if you just slice it and sort through a piece of that, select, and like Kelsey is saying, I also agree with that. It's not easy. I don't know how it could be any easier unless we like knew you and fed you, like there was an actual program for you to go through. But as far as conference goes, just sitting there, listening to the words, acquiring the vocabulary, talking to people, eventually sinks in and uh, it works for me. So I'll say one last thing on this. If the market decides that a certain segment of users are not being taken care of, there'll be another conference. And I think you should go to that conference. CNCF does not own all the brain space for cloud native and Kubernetes. So we'll let the market figure that out. But you're right. Over So we were 12,000 people two weeks ago in San Diego. Um, I'm not sure how big Amsterdam will be. And I'm sure Boston will be that size, maybe maybe 15, maybe even more people. So the community or the, the ecosystem will figure it out. Like we've done it with everything. We don't just have programming. We used to have programming conferences. Now we have all these languages. So we're growing, but it's a good thing because now we can actually focus on those things that we want to talk about. But keep asking that question. You know what I mean? I think that authenticity, when I don't see it, you got to remind people of it. You know what I mean? Like this year when I decided to, what to talk about during my keynote, I decided to strip away the live demos, strip away a lot of the stuff and just say, you know, maybe I'll try something new, right? And to try to bring it back down to my own kind of ground level. And we need everything. We need people pushing the bar. We need people reminding people. We need, we need other people challenging what we're reminding people about, right? Because our glory days are probably painful to some other people, right? So we got to be careful about how we kind of, you know, glorify the past. Yeah, and, and also find each other, find people who are the, the same level. So learning together makes things so much easier. But I personally very much empathize. And one of the reasons for this show is to help people understand the, the what's, the why's. Kelsey, we are very much at the end of our time together, but I want to give you an opportunity to make any last question, comments. Yeah, I mean, I always end with uh, just pay attention to the fundamentals. That's the people stuff. Fundamentally, we just people uh, working on some stuff. <laughs> Fundamentally, the technology is roughly the same. When I peel back my 10 years, the tech looks very similar that it did 10 years ago, except for the way we do it is slightly different. And I think people should find a little bit of encouragement in that, that this isn't overwhelming new. It's just a remapping of some of these ideas and formalization of these ideas that we're all seeming to want to work together 
for the very first time in a long time. So I think it's just a good time to be in this space. So enjoy it while we have it because it could be boring again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. It could be boring again. That's a great quote. All right, everybody. Kelsey, thank you so much for being with us. Everybody, thank you, Later. all thank the you. hosts. Thank we'll, you, Kelsey, as well. Yeah, my Later. pleasure. To, I am so grateful to be here. And we'll be in your ears next week again. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter at The Podlets and on the podlets.io website. That is The Podlets altogether, where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing. Thank you.